0: Last week, we saw that our Lord is righteous. He demands worship that lines up with the word of God. So should we. Today, we're gonna be taking a look at John three, but before we do, we actually have to read verses chapter two, verse 23 through 25, where it speaks about that Jesus knew what was in man. And it's interesting because before the invention of chapter breaks, hundreds of years back, you could keep on reading and you'd find out who that man was, or at least one of the uh, pictures of the man, who he was. So we'll read that in just a second. But suffice it to say, we're gonna take a look at the first part of that conversation that Nicodemus had with Jesus. And we're gonna uh, explain this concept of what does it mean to be born from above or born again? I was born in 1970. I told you before I was not certain when I became a believer. When did the Lord actually raise me up from the dead? Um, I was either six or 14 or 21. So I was six years old. I was, it was 1976, 1984, or 1991. Some of you can relate to that. Whereas some of you, you know that you know that you know. You woke up the next morning and you loved Jesus, where it's the day beforehand you really wanted nothing to do with him. So God. He raises us up in different ways, in different times. Um, No, he doesn't raise us three times. He raises us up once. But sometimes we just don't know, especially if you grew up in a Christian home. You can't tell for certain. But we're gonna take a look at this. And before we do, once again, let's take a look at John chapter two, verse 23 through 25. We're just gonna keep reading straight into chapter three, verse one and two. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, did you catch that? Who is this man? Ah, He's not entrusting himself to man, and here is a man, Nicodemus. So it was meant to flow in that fashion. And we're gonna see that Jesus does not entrust himself to him, at least not yet. I would make a point that I think Nicodemus does become a believer, but not that night. That night, I think he walks away completely confused. Not because of Jesus, but because of his own heart. So, uh, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's one of the Pharisees. As a reminder, uh, the Pharisees were also sent with the Sadducees to investigate John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. And now, look, they're investigating this one. Uh, his uh, The name Pharisee probably comes from a word meaning to separate. Uh, they were the spiritual descendants of the men who had successfully opposed Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century. Antiochus tried to destroy the Jewish faith. So the Pharisees' parents, great-grandparents, they were, the, they were the, basically the, uh, the heroes of the nation. They were the good guys. And what's so sad is you find out by the time we get to the Pharisees, the separate ones, they have now become the bad guys because they have become legalists. They upheld the law, and yet they added to the law by their oral interpretations and man-made regulations. Some of these, you're going to laugh, and I'm gonna give you an example here. Uh, Dr. S. Lewis Johnson is quoted to, uh, he studied them well, and he writes this. uh, These Pharisees loved to pray in the marketplaces and sit in the prominent seats. They also loved to lord it over the people. They were very scrupulous in their adherence to the Mosaic law. Not simply to the law, but the law as it was interpreted by ages and ages of tradition. For example, some of them held that a woman should not look into the mirror on the Sabbath because she might see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. And if she reached up and pulled out a gray hair, that would be working according to their interpretation of Sabbath law. Also, an individual could swallow vinegar on the Sabbath day as a remedy for a sore throat, but what could he not do? Gargling. It's working. You think I'm kidding? No. These man-made laws were ridiculous. Um, But they they had come from a good line, and they end up very poorly. And here's we've got a man named Nicodemus. His name means literally victor over the people. He's a Pharisee. He's also, something else is he's a ruler of the Jews. That's even more so than just a Pharisee. That means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest legislative and judicial body of the Jews. It was made up of uh, 71 Pharisees and Sadducees. I mean, this guy's big time. Um, And it's interesting though, the Pharisees' uh, concentration of power were in the synagogues, teaching places all throughout the countryside, in the city. Uh, the power base for the Sadducees were the temple. was the temple. Why am I telling you that? Because in all likelihood, Nicodemus would be glad that Jesus just cleansed the temple. The Pharisees, strangely enough, would be cheering him on at this one. Or at the very least, they're glad because they don't like the Sadducees who are, are liberals, if you will. It says, this man came to Jesus by night. Why did he come to Jesus by night? It's interesting, some people are so certain of the reasons, but we don't know exactly. One of the reasons, it could be just fear of public association with Jesus. So you come to him at night, so people won't see you. It could be. Number two, it could be just a desire for a long discussion without interruption. You could speak late into the night and you wouldn't be bothered by people. Either way, thirdly, it fits John's symbolism of night and darkness, this motif when a person is in darkness or a person is it's, it's in the nighttime, uh, John is meaning there's something evil going on or it's ignorance. It's one of the two. And we still use that same sort of language. Oh, that guy's in the dark about that. He, he's ignorant. He doesn't know it. So we, we can relate to what John is doing by inspiration of the Spirit. So when we see in chapter 13 where Judas uh, betrays Christ, And it says, after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Yes, this is bad. This is something, uh, powers of darkness are taking charge here of Christ as he is being handed over to crucifixion. So Nicodemus, a teacher in darkness, ignorance, comes to meet the teacher, the light of the world. So he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. He doesn't say I, he says we. So he's representing, we don't know if he's representing all the Pharisees or just some of them like Joseph of Arimathea that that like this guy, but we're checking you out. So we know that you're a teacher. Uh, No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus had seen great signs and so he figured he was a great teacher but what did he fail to interpret? This is not just the teacher. This is the Messiah. This is the creator of the universe you're sitting with right now. Uh, but it, it makes you think about this. Can false teachers also do signs? That's, that's important to point out. Uh, yes, definitely. We see the magicians in the book of Exodus. They're able to turn their rods into snakes and water into blood and, and frogs. By the time we get to the gnats, what do they say? Ooh, this is the finger of God. We don't do gnats. We don't make gnats. Um, But they could do some pretty amazing wonders, even if it was sleight of hand. 2 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 13 through 15 says, Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. False teachers can also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, 2 Thessalonians 2 9, it says, When the Antichrist comes, he will come with all power and signs and false wonders. I tell you all that because many times in American evangelicalism, we are following people that are that have tremendous signs, and they think they must be, must be something. Must, God must be with them. No, no. Be careful. First John 4 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, for but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So here's the question. How do you test the spirits? Or perhaps you could say it like this. What do you test the spirits by? I hope you'd get this answer correct. It always comes back to what does the Bible say? I love the Bereans in Acts seventeen eleven, the Bereans were more noble than the, those living in Thessalonica, for they received the message, Paul's message, with great eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. Folks, if we could take Paul from the first century in a time machine to here, we all would listen with rapt attention. And I guarantee you, I hope I'm not going out on a limb here and say we wouldn't question anything of what he said. But the Bible actually commends the Bereans for questioning the apostle Paul and saying, whoa, hold on a second. Where are you getting that in scripture? Let me check that out. And the Bible commends them. This is the way we should be. So continuing on, uh, false teachers can certainly do great signs. But Nicodemus is convinced that Jesus is a great teacher because he does great signs, and what does Jesus say? Verse three, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Did you catch the verb there? Answered him? Nicodemus at this point is scratching his head and like, I didn't ask that question. Well, why does it say he answered him? Well, I think Christ is answering the question that's going on in Nicodemus's mind that he hasn't gotten to yet. Perhaps what he was about to say, and then Jesus answers him this way. And I think what he was about to ask is, how can I enter the kingdom of God? Or another way he could have said is, how can I inherit eternal life? Because listen, to see the kingdom of God is to inherit eternal life. One is the same. And so Jesus says to him, amen, amen. We would say it, amen, amen. which means so be it, it is true. And the reason why Jesus says this is really to get your attention to what I'm about to say. The uh, first century Jews aren't so different than us. Have you spoken with somebody and then you'll go to, to tell you the truth, does the person ever look at you and say, have you been lying to me all along? No, you're you're trying to get their attention and point out something very important, what I'm about to say, and this is what Jesus does. Truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again. Born is the verb. Again is the adverb. Uh, It's the Greek word anothen, and it can mean both born again and born from above. Which one does it mean? Well, context shows you that John uses this adverb five times in the gospel of John. The last three cases that John uses it, it always means from above, from above, from above. Now, once again, it can mean in essence the same thing because if you are born from above, you are born a second time. You're born again. And yet Nicodemus takes it as Jesus has just said be born again Maybe he wasn't listening to him. Maybe he just took it that way. And so oftentimes, as Jesus does, he uses people's mistaken understandings to further explain himself. And he just says beforehand, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The word there to see, it's, it's this idea of, uh, it's a metaphorical. It's seeing with the mind. We would say it like this, experience. Experience. Um, Certainly, "see" is an accurate term, but experience is perhaps even closer to it. You can't experience the kingdom of God. And then the question for you people that love to study the future, and rightly so, because we should be good students of the word, is he referring to the the kingdom of God like earthly or or heavenly? Is is he speaking of the present kingdom of God that he's bringing or, or future? And I would answer that with a resounding Yes, we'll study eschatology, future events soon, but I think all those are comprised there. And so what Jesus is basically saying to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, something must be done to you in order for you to experience, see the kingdom of God. Um, what does it mean to be born again? That's a term that we use um, and I've talked to witness to people before. What does it mean? I love the way Moy said it's a, in his prayer. It's a hard concept, but um, but Jesus does line it out. Yeah, it's actually not lined out here as much as it's lined out in Ezekiel. We'll we'll take you there in a, uh, in a few minutes. But suffice it to say this: when a person is born again, two things take place. There's many things, but two in particular. Number one, you have divine surgery. You're not put under the, uh, the mask, uh, but you have a divine surgery that takes place. And what God does, according to Ezekiel 36, 26, is God takes out your heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh, meaning heart of stone meaning dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. And he all of a sudden makes you alive. You never were alive before. Uh, divine surgery. And the second thing is he does, he puts in a divine person. The spirit of God comes to reside in you according to Ezekiel 36, 27. We'll see that passage in a moment. So just hang tight. So divine surgery, divine person, and you are born again. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean you don't uh, sin anymore. I'm looking at a bunch of people that sin every moment. As a matter of fact, even as I speak, some of you are sinning and I just know it. Your mind is going on to things, and you're like, how does he know? Because I'm a person that sins all the time. But something changes in you. God gives you justification. You are born again. He, literally, you are justified in God's sight, and he doesn't make you innocent. By the way, you don't wanna be innocent in God's sight. Innocence, well, you can't be in God's sight being innocent. What does he make you? Righteous. The righteousness of the Son of God is given to you. Oh, there's so much more, but we won't get done today if I go into all of it right now. Why? Why is it necessary to be born again? Can't you just read the Bible, study, and try to live out its precepts? Um, the reason why you have to be born again, I hate to break this to you, especially to some of you younger people, you're dead according to the Bible. You're dead. Ephesians 2.1, it says before Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's kind of freaky, but it's true. Spiritually speaking, you're not alive. You're dead. You're you're, uh, a follower of Satan. Satan is your present father at this moment, spiritually speaking. And so God has to have you be born again Verse four, Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus takes Christ literally, thinking, how's this gonna be possible? How am I gonna talk to my mother about this one? And it's shocking. This is shocking to Nicodemus. And here's the reasons why. There's ramifications of what Christ is saying that's beyond what Nicodemus could have ever imagined. Three things in particular, ramifications of Christ's words. Number one, being of a particular race or godly family cannot save you. It can't happen. Many Jews thought because they were born Jewish, they would be in the kingdom of God. I'm Jewish, of course. I love what one of the commentators states. He explains it a little bit better, David Guzik. He says, some rabbis taught that Abraham stood watch at the gate of hell just to make sure that none of his descendants accidentally wandered in there. Well, we laugh, but some today, even in this room, are somehow trusting in your family for your salvation. I was raised in this family. Of course I'm a Christian. My parents are Christians. I'm a Christian. Or perhaps just due to our culture. I'm a Texan, of course I'm saved. That's not true, that's not true, no. So he finds that out. Number two, he's making it very clear that performing more good deeds or changing your ways cannot save you. Spurgeon puts it this way, a man may cast away many vices and forsake many lusts in which he indulge and conquer evil habits, but no man in the world can make himself to be born of God. Though he should struggle ever so much, he could never accomplish what is beyond his power. And mark you, even if he could make himself be born again, still he would not enter heaven because there is another point in verse five in the condition which he would have violated. Unless a man be born of the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Point. You can't somehow fix your life. You can't stop doing bad things and be born again. It's not possible. And thirdly, understanding more of the Bible cannot save you. There is solid evidence that the Pharisees memorized the entire Old Testament. Not just verses, not just chapters, books. They had the whole thing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'll stop there they had the whole thing memorized. Pharisees considered themselves the gatekeepers of the kingdom. And Nicodemus is now being told, you cannot come without being born again. Now, Nicodemus clearly does not understand, so Jesus puts it another way in verse five and six. Let's take a look. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So when he says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, what does that phrase mean? Let me give you three options. The first one is terrible, and you cannot hold to that if you go to Grace Church. And that is this, water baptism. Maybe that's what that water means, that you have to be baptized in order, to be, uh, in order for true salvation to take place. The biggest problem with that is because it's opposed to Scripture. But historically speaking, the Jews knew nothing of water baptism in order to be in the kingdom. That would be, that's bizarre. That means everybody from Adam to John the Baptist are not believers. Not buying that. That doesn't fit with Scripture. It doesn't fit theologically with Scripture. Baptism does not save you. Some of you come from those sort of church traditions. But let me tell you what, if you are putting any emphasis on the waters of baptism, you are taking away from the cross of Christ. You can't have it both ways. It's either Jesus or it's works, even though baptism is a good thing and we encourage it here. Number two, some would say that maybe what he means by that is physical birth. You know, you're born of water, which would be the amniotic fluid. You're, you know, you parent, uh, mo- what is it, a mother? Is that what you call it? Mothers, water break, something to this effect, and there you go, physical birth, and then you have spiritual birth. So you have to have both. Uh, that is an option. The only reason why I think it's doubtful is there's a question as to whether the ancients used that phrase at all. Uh, the waters of birth, I mean, it's, there's some questions on that, and it doesn't really fit the context Best, I think what fits the context best is spiritual washing of the soul by the spirit, both referring to the same act. I know we take it as like water and spirit, but what I'm saying, it's the same act, and the reason why it is the same act is because there is no article before spirit. What it reads best is that unless one is born of water and spirit, spirit and water working together, it's as the symbolism would dictate, and um, God gives you salvation. Now let's take a look at that Ezekiel passage, can we? Ezekiel thirty six twenty four through twenty seven. Here's what God's going to do. The people should have known this. I will take you from the nations, I mean the Jewish people. Take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. There's that picture of salvation. Did you catch how many times the, the word I is in there? I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. With this concept of water, we also see with Jesus in John four fourteen. whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There's that water motif again. John 7, 37, 38. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So once again, the spirit, water, this is just symbolic language, what God does. He takes out the heart of stone, puts in the heart of flesh. He gives us the spirit. The water, if you will, cleanses, making us new creations. And he makes it very clear to Nicodemus, he that doesn't have that done cannot enter the kingdom of God. Notice he doesn't say it's improbable, Nicodemus. He says it's impossible. Why is it impossible? He tells us, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, remember John 1? Just to be clear, remember for John in his book, flesh is not a sign of evil although it is in the writings of Paul. It's a sign of weakness. So in John 1, when it says the word became flesh, it doesn't mean Jesus, uh, you know, the son of God became evil. No, he became weak, if you will. He was able uh, to be killed. He took on flesh. It became possible for him to die. Also, I think what Jesus is getting at when he says, flesh begets flesh, spirit begets spirit, is that like produces like. They just do. Uh, Female cats do not give birth to puppies, although we wish they would, just quite honestly. And for you cat lovers, female cats give birth to kittens. We noted who you were. We'll talk with you afterwards. Point being is this, flesh produces flesh that's all it does. It can't produce spirit. You can't somehow get it together and go, I got it. Yes, I'm born again. I figured it out. No, flesh doesn't produce. It just produces more flesh. It can't produce spirit. I love the way Tom Constable, Dallas Seminary puts it. He says, the implication of Jesus' illustration of new birth is that life with God in the future will require completely new equipment, We've heard this before when we've tried to fix things on our house or our cars. Nothing worse than a mechanic looking at your car and say, we don't make that part anymore. Or perhaps on your washing machine, we don't make that part anymore. You'll have to buy a completely new one. And so if you will, Jesus is saying, really it's the same thing in the past. Flesh doesn't produce anything but flesh and it can't produce the spirit And so Jesus says in verse seven and eight, do not marvel that I said to you, y'all, he's using the plural there, y'all must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus is blown away. And it's like Jesus looks at him and says, really? And he's gonna say in just a few, maybe next Sunday, you're a teacher of Israel, you don't know this? And he says, do not marvel. Nicodemus, you should not be surprised at this language. The Old Testament spoke of spiritual birth. This is what God does. And he says, y'all must be born again. So the point of, he's looking at Nicodemus and saying, whoever sent you or whichever people that you're representative, it's not just you, but every single one of you must be born again. Um. one of the commentators named Cole tells the story of George Whitfield, a 17th century evangelist. He realized at the age of 21 after he tried to reform his wicked life. He tried to do it by praying, fasting, giving money to the poor, and the Lord used a book written by Henry who who is a Scottish theologian who wrote the book The Life of God in the Soul of Man. The book showed Whitfield what the Bible says even more clearly. You must be born again. You must be born from above, a new creation. Whitfield said, when I read this, when he finally got it, understood when the Lord saved him, when I read this, a ray of divine light simultaneously darted in upon my soul. And from that moment, but not till then, did I know that I must become a new creature. After having undergone innumerable buffetings by day and night, God was pleased at length to remove my heavy load and to enable me by a living faith to lay hold on his dear son and oh with what joy joy unspeakable and full of glory was i filled when the weight of sin left me and an abiding sense of the pardoning love of god broke in upon my disconsolate soul 2 Corinthians 5:17 you are a new creation the old is gone the new has come now, just as a caveat here, to be very clear, do I believe in divine sovereignty? Yes. Why? It's what the Bible says. Do I believe in human responsibility? Yes. Why? It's what the Bible says. You hold them both up and you don't fully understand. But as Spurgeon would say when they tried to uh, kind of push him on this, how do you reconcile those concepts? And he said, I don't reconcile friends. That's what they are. So you preach them both. And this passage is divine sovereignty. So he says, uh, the wind blows where it pleases. So the wind, it's interesting, in the Greek as well as the Hebrew, wind and spirit is the same word, same exact word. And so you only know from the context what each one is. He says, the wind Blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. So three things about the wind, which is also transferable to three things about the spirit. Um, number one, it's sovereign. The wind does what it wants. When we have tornado watches or warnings, uh, you've seen it before where it will destroy many houses, and then all of a sudden, one is perfectly situated. I always felt kind of bad about praying that the tornado would not, would bypass us, because I feel like I'm praying that it would hit somebody else, just not me. So that's a side note. You can help me work through that later. But point of it is is that wind is sovereign. It doesn't ask. It doesn't ask permission. It just comes. Um, number, number two, you hear its sound. What does that mean? That means you can see the effects of wind, but you cannot see wind, nor can you see the spirit. He's invisible. Can't see him. It, it would be kind of neat, perhaps, to see when the spirit would come upon you. You're like, whoa, I'm becoming a new believer. Here it is, but you can't see it. You can only see the effects, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And number three, so not only is he sovereign, not only is he invisible, but number three, you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. The spirit or wind, it's unpredictable. Now, I'm not saying it's cavalier, like it doesn't know what it's doing. No, it's just, it's, we cannot predict its path. We just can't. Same with the spirit. Let me tell you what, the people in my life that I figured would become believers, I was like, yeah, this guy's gonna believe. Hasn't happened yet. And then there's some people in my life that I go, (laughs) this guy, I mean, there's no way God will save him. And sure enough, and I'm thinking of one person in particular, not in here. (laughs) God saved him. It's just, what? Really? So ultimately, you can't stop the purposes and plans of the Lord. And so Jesus concludes with, so it is with everyone who's born in the spirit. They hear the same Christian message, the same gospel. Some believe, some don't. This is the Lord. I can't explain. So how can you tell? How can I tell if I am born again? Well, I think you just have to ask the question is this, is have you trusted Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Um, You're born again if you've trusted him. This is the way It works. Um, 1 John, though, actually gives us evidence of a person that has been born again. 1 John five thirteen, 13, he says, I've written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you wanna know if you have eternal life today? Well, there's certain characteristics. Now, to be clear, we're not talking perfectionism, but the Holy Spirit produces three things in particular, many, but one of them is truth, you really hold that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He really did die on the cross. He really did die for you. He really did come in the flesh. He's gonna resurrect you one day. These sort of aspects and characteristics that are just right in the Bible. Truth, number two, how about love? Not just love for God, but love for your brother, we'll talk about. And number three, is there, is there obedience in your life? And at this point, somebody goes, oh no, I'm definitely not a believer. I disobey all the time. I disobey all the time. But what does the trajectory of your life look like? If it looks like perfectionism, that's not what the Bible teaches. But if it looks like stumbling, and yet the whole way stumbling as you follow Christ, those are, those are uh, characteristics of a believer. So let me just give you some verses. You can study them on your own. 1 John 2, 29, if you know that he is righteous, meaning Christ, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Practices, you wanna you want get better at this by God's grace. Not perfect, but practicing. 1 John 3, 9, if no one, no, rather no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now look up here. Some of you that are really, perhaps your conscience is incredibly sensitive. You just read that he keeps on sinning. I keep on sinning. You're missing what he's saying. He's saying, making a practice of sinning. Um, Are you practicing? When you practice a sport or a musical instrument, you wanna get better at it. If you're making a practice of sin, then you do have question to go, wait a second. Why do I keep wanting to get better at lying or lust or gossip or slander or greed? Those are questions we should ask ourselves because when a person is born again, the Holy Spirit is changing him. Now, once again, I I wanna be careful here. We are sinners. Even as we are saints, we we have the Spirit of God within us. We're not gonna be perfect. A lot of the things we're gonna do, we, we may keep doing, but the Spirit of God is changing us. Is he changing you when you look at your past? Or are you actually worse now? You may feel worse because you're getting closer and closer to the light. God is changing you. But do you look the same you did 10 years ago or maybe worse? That's, that's questioning. First John, first John 4, seven, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That's why you can't say, well, I love Jesus. I just don't go to church. I don't wanna be around God's people. I would say if you don't love God's people, you don't love God where are you getting that from? I just, I just read that. And there's other places in first John that say that. Why? Because we have been born of him. So I have to love you. One of the reasons I have to love you is because you have the spirit of God in you. We share, we share the same spirit. Get this. We have the same older brother in Jesus. And we also have this share the same father. How can I not spend time with you? First John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Same idea right there. Now, I wanna be clear on this. I'm not saying we always like each other. Sometimes we rub each other wrong and, and rightly so, but let's not use that as our mantle. I love everyone, I just don't like them. Don't, no, 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 that's, I've heard that before. It's not helpful. No, you're really supposed to love the brethren. And sometimes we're hard to get along with. It's just just the way it is. And 1 John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, to be clear, where does our faith even come from? Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you are saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. Or as one of the translations says, this not your own doing. It's a gift of God not as a result of works that no one should boast. So born of God overcomes the world. And even that is all God's grace. You see, God's not going to thank any of us in the some sense that we, when we get to heaven, way to go, you figured it all out. I'm so proud of you. No, we're born sinners. We're born dead. And the Lord saved us even in his grace. I'd like to end with a story. Maybe you'll find this helpful Once again, Cole mentions it, but actually it's uh, by Ironside and he writes the story of this. Uh, Happened a guy named Bishop John Taylor Smith. He was preaching in a large cathedral. He's a believer and he preached on the text, you must be born again. And he said, my dear people, do not substitute anything for the new birth. You may be a member of the church, but church membership is not new birth. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The rector who is sitting on his left, he pointed to him and he said, you may be a clergyman like my friend, the rector here and and not be born again. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. On his right side sat the archdeacon. Pointing at him, he continued, you might even be an archdeacon like my friend here and still not be born again. But except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You might even be a bishop like myself and not be born again. But except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Several days later, Smith received a letter from the archdeacon, which read in part, my dear bishop, you have found me out. I have been a clergyman for over 30 years, but I have never known anything of the joy that Christians speak of. I could never understand it. But when you pointed at me and said that a person could be an archdeacon and not be born again, I understood what the trouble was. Would you please come and talk with me? Well, Bishop Smith did talk to him, and the archdeacon responded to Christ's call to salvation. He believed. Can you imagine? guy's been 30 years in the church, and now he's being baptized because he's saying, I just became a believer." You think that's rare? Do you think we could even have here the at grace? Of course. Of course. So the questions I'll conclude with is what about you? How do you know if you're born again? Well, I would tell you with this command, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you were born again. Don't try to figure out what happens behind the curtain with God's sovereignty and human responsibility. You just trust the Lord. He's got you and walk in his ways. And for the rest of us that were born again perhaps years ago or even decades ago, keep running. The Spirit is using you. He's changing you. Don't lose heart. Stay with him. He stays with you. Father, thank you for your word. Thanks for your uh, Holy Spirit that uh, washed me several years back and it was because of nothing on my part. You gave me faith, repentance, I believed, these are acts of the Lord. Uh, Jonah 2.10, salvation is from the Lord. And yet at the same time, Lord, we are called to go out and make disciples, not to somehow think that you will just um, do it all on your own. It's our job also to go out and talk to people about Jesus Christ because we know that we, uh, you utilize us in that way. I pray for anybody in here who's not yet known Jesus as Savior. Lord, would you grant them salvation? Would you make them be born again today? And that they would hear the words that I say and read the words of Scripture and the Holy Spirit would save them. And we would live forever because of what Jesus Christ did for them. In your son's name we pray it, amen.